Let us worship God. reading of the first psalm. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Holy One, we give you thanks for these ancient words and for the lives of those who have carried them down throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning, that your word might fall afresh upon us this day. Amen. Amen. 
Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Holy One, and on this law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Holy One watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God.
Our gospel reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Listen for God's word. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets, prophets who were before you. The word of our God. Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A woman on Facebook posted what she said was an actual conversation with her seven-year-old son. Mother, why do you look so grumpy? Child, I can't tell you. Mother, um, why? Child, because then you're going to ask me if that was a good decision. <laughs> this brief exchange between mother and son is practically a complete sermon on Psalm 1. Why do you look grumpy? Why aren't you happy? Because I did something that wasn't a good decision. When we first hear Psalm 1, we might be put off by some of the language. It refers to the wicked and to sinners over and against the righteous. That sounds like the kind of black and white fire and brimstone way of thinking that ignores the complexity of the human condition and forgets that love and forgiveness are God's defining characteristics. It's just too easy to label people as sinners or wicked when you simply don't agree with them or when you don't know what they've been through. But the psalmist isn't trying to draw a stark line between so-called righteous people and so-called sinners as much as saying that we have choices to make. We all have choices to make. Life is a journey, and again and again, we are confronted with choices about what path we will take on that journey. We can make choices that make the world, our lives, and the lives of others better or worse. Sometimes the better choice is obvious, other times it's anything but clear. The psalmist tells us that we'll find clarity in following Torah, or as our Bibles translate it, the law. A better translation of the word law might be God's teaching or God's instruction. In the broadest sense, it suggests God's will, God's will for the world. So Psalm 1 doesn't point to a mechanical process of following a set of rules for which we're then rewarded with happiness. The psalmist describes meditating on God's will day and night, in other words, constantly, 
in order to discern what God would have us do in any given situation. What exactly is God's will? What is it that we're supposed to be studying? Jesus later summarized the Torah, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, according to the psalmist, happiness comes from discerning what it means at all times and in all places to do just that, love God, love neighbor. Now, I can hear the wheels turning in many, if not most, of our heads, constant Meditation on God's will, well, that's just asking way too much. But again, this is a journey. No one does this perfectly. Dr. Jim Taylor, a psychology professor at the University of San Francisco, says that whenever he speaks to a group of young people, he asks how many of them have ever done something stupid. With complete unanimity and considerable enthusiasm, they all raise their hands. He then asks why they do stupid things. Their responses include, I didn't stop to think. It seemed like fun at the time. I was bored. Peer pressure. I didn't consider the consequences and to get back at my parents. Taylor says children should do stupid things, making poor decisions and experiencing the consequences help our children learn how to make better choices in the future. The problem is if their poor decision-making continues. This happens, says Taylor, when parents bail kids out of the trouble that their bad choices bring. Taylor writes, the long-term personal, social, and professional implications of children growing up to be poor decision-makers are profound, negative, and I think obvious. Good decision-making, says Taylor, is a complex process that takes years to master. That's what the psalmist is talking about. Years of practice, a lifetime of practicing living according to God's desires for God's world. Practicing loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. The psalmist insists that this will make us happy. Sometimes it's hard to convince kids or grown-ups that this is true when, unfortunately, We see that cheaters do sometimes prosper, and as the book of Ecclesiastes puts it, there are righteous people who perish in their righteousness, and there are wicked people who prolong their life in their evil doing. That explains what the psalmist calls scoffers. If you've ever been the parent of an adolescent, you know exactly who the scoffers are. Think of the kids that you don't want your kid to hang out with, the kids who think that they're cool because they scoff at the rules and scoff at any kid who isn't cool enough to be as lacking in compassion and concern for others as they are. Scoffers don't see any upside to goodness, so they scoff at it. Are the scoffers happy? It depends on how you define happiness. The passage from Matthew's Gospel is called the Beatitudes. It's the familiar introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, and so on. The Greek word for blessed is translated as happy in several other places in the New Testament. 
The Good News Bible uses happy in its translation of the Beatitudes, and for those of us who've heard these verses a million times, it's fresh and even jarring. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. God will satisfy them. Notice that the people who Jesus is calling blessed or happy are not people that the larger culture views as happy. Jesus isn't giving us a set of ethical instructions. He's asking us to take a long, loving look. He's asking us to recognize happiness or blessedness, and he's urging his disciples then and now, including us, to look at those around us differently than the culture does. Rather than measure people by their possessions, we're invited to see their character. Rather than merely take pity on their losses, we're invited to enter into them. Rather than judge their failings, we're invited to forgive and remind them that they are blessed by God and born for more than they've settled for. And rather than despise weakness, we're invited to see in it the truest point of meeting between God's children, because God reveals God's self most clearly and consistently at our places of deepest need. Perhaps Jesus is saying that what makes people truly happy, truly blessed, is not the division, destruction, and chaos of society's business as usual, but rather what gives humanity hope, what gives humanity connection, and what just might give our planet and our species a future. November 1st, this, this week, is All Saints Day, which we're observing here today at 7th Avenue. In the Roman Catholic tradition, saints are people who lived an exceptionally good life and then died. And originally, each saint had a single saint's day, but there are around 40,000 saints in the Roman Catholic tradition, so eventually most of them were celebrated on one day, All Saints Day. For Presbyterians, 40,000 is just a start. In our tradition, a saint is not someone who performed miracles or lived an exceptionally holy life or even someone who's dead. In scripture, saints are common folk who had accepted the invitation to live now, not just after they die, but now in the kingdom of God, or if you prefer, the reign of God, or the household of God, or the kingdom of God. In other words, saints are the people who tried and are trying to practice living according to God's desires for God's world, just as Psalm 1 describes. All Saints is a day when it is appropriate to remember all the saints, including our ancestors in the faith, those on whose shoulders we stand. I'm sure you've seen painted icons of saints from the Greek and Russian Orthodox Doc's traditions, uh, artist Kelly Lattimore has painted icons of some contemporary saints, people who in various ways practiced living according to God's desires for our world, even if they might not have used that language to describe their lives. Her icons include James Baldwin, Mary Oliver, Martin Luther King Jr., Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Desmond Tutu. The one I want for my office is of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. 
Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister, ordained to his television ministry, although he never mentioned church, God, or Jesus on his TV show. Maxwell King's biography shows Fred Rogers to be quirky, certainly not perfect, and yet Rogers epitomizes both Psalm 1 and the Beatitudes in that he tried to live and to model behavior that gives humanity hope and a future. Back in 1998, Tom Junod wrote a long article for Esquire magazine about Fred Rogers entitled, Can You Say Hero? He wrote, once upon a time, a man named Fred Rogers decided that he wanted to live in heaven. Heaven is the place where good people go when they die, but this man, Fred Rogers, didn't want to go to heaven. He wanted to live in heaven, here, now, in this world. And so one day when he was talking about all the people he had loved in this life, he looked at me and said, the connections we make in the course of a life, maybe that's what heaven is, Tom. We make so many connections here on earth. Look at us. I've just met you, but I'm investing in who you are and who you will be, and I can't help it. Like the little boy I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, Fred Rogers paid attention to choices. In one of his many commencement speeches, he said, I'm very much interested in choices and what and who it is that enable us human beings to make the choices we make all through our lives. What choices lead to ethnic cleansing? What choices lead to healing? What choices lead to the destruction of the environment, the erosion of the Sabbath, suicide bombings, or students shooting teachers? What choices encourage heroism in the midst of chaos? What choices lead to a future with hope? What choices lead to heaven on earth, to life now in the kingdom of God? And who has served as your role model for those choices? Who are the saints on whose shoulders you stand? Rogers was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 1997 Daytime Emmys. When he went on stage to accept the award, he said, all of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take along with me 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are, 10 seconds of silence. Would you hear this morning, do that now. I'll watch the time. Another Fred, Frederick Beekner, wrote, To be a saint is to be human, because we were created to be human. To be a saint is to live with courage and self-restraint, but it is more than that. To be a saint is to live not with hands clenched to grasp, to strike, to hold tight to a life that is always slipping away the more tightly we hold it, but to live with the hands stretched out, both to give and receive with gladness, 
To be a saint is to work and weep for the broken and suffering of the world, but it is also to be strangely light of heart in the knowledge that there is something greater than the world that mends and renews. Maybe more than anything else, to be a saint is to know joy. It is to live a life that is always giving itself away and yet is always full. To be a saint is to know joy. To to live a life that gives itself away but is always full. To be a saint is to be happy, blessed, not because we're perfect or the world is perfect, but because there is something greater that mends and renews and connects us. Thanks be to God for you, the saints of 7th Avenue. Amen. Trust 
as we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God.
fed us in silence, in song, in memory, and in community. And for that, we give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Go forth blessed by them and by one another, as together we realize heaven on earth. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the community of the Holy Spirit be with you all today and evermore.
Go in peace.